You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. Our uh, scripture this morning is Luke 5:17 through uh, I'm sorry, 5:17 through 6:11 and I will be reading verses 33 through 39. You can find that on page 594 in the chairback Bibles in front of you. Uh, verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, "The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink." And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you have given us to come together to worship. Be with Jeremy now as we open your word and give us discernment to hear what you would have to say to us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Liz. Seems to me everybody hates change. Whether it's a new policy at work, new place that you're supposed to park when you go there, something at the school You attend kids or parents some way that you have to do procedure at school that they change. Think, man, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Why you got to be changing stuff on me? Some of you recently had somebody sit in your spot here in the worship center, and you're thinking, didn't you know that was my place? When we get into some nameplates on my seat so they don't be taking it. I don't think any of us like change. I do grant, though, there may be a few of you who go, I do. I love change, Pastor. And it's my theory, if you're here and you actually would put yourself in the I love change category, it's because you're the one bringing the change. (laughs) Oh, I love change, too, and I'm calling the shots on it. This is a great change. I'm... Honey, I've got a change for us to have in the house. And this is for your good, girl. I'm looking out for you. We, I think we, we like change when we're the ones instituting it. For the, for the rest of people who are down the mountain from the decision making and the change happens to us, that's, that's no fun. I don't, think, I don't think anybody likes change. We don't want to have to adapt. We're comfortable. I like the predictable. Just don't move my cheese. Just let me do my thing. In our text today, some of the main characters have this attitude of, I don't like change either. 
And what Luke wants us to do in this section, and this is a pretty big section, 5.11, or, or 5.17 to 6.11, in this section, what, what we're going to be invited to do is identify with the main characters in this text who don't want to change either. We're going to be called to identify spiritually with the people in our text who don't want to change either. And those people are the religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes. In our text, they're called teachers of the law. And if, and if you're here and you're like, time out, bro, those are the bad guys. You, you want me to identify with the bad guys in the text? Pastor, pastor, I just show up. I come to this worship service, I, I hear the Bible preached, I read the Bible, I do what it says, why are you making me identify with the bad guys? Know that, know that they say the same thing as well. If, if we could interview the bad guys in our text, they'd say, I just read the Bible and do what it says, why am I the bad guy? And... What I want us to consider this morning is we may have more in common with the religious leaders, these Pharisees, teachers of the law, than we'd like to admit. And I know our tendency when we read the Bible is to put ourselves on the good guys. You know, Pastor, I'm going to identify with Jesus on this one. I want to too, but that's the wrong character. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open up to our preaching passage today, we're going to walk through four confrontations that Jesus has with these religious leaders, and, and we're going to see four ways that Jesus is saying, even though you may go, I'm just reading the Bible and do what it says, you're off. And as we walk through our text, it's going to invite us to consider, are there some ways that you and I need to change? Are there some old comfortable patterns that we may think, I just feel safe in my predictable religious system, Pastor, that even this morning, Jesus is calling you to reconsider. There in the scriptures, look at 5.17, we begin with the first confrontation Jesus has with the religious leaders, and, and the title of this section for us, I... I've put it this way, that's the wrong way to forgive sins. In the mouth of the religious leaders, this section is accusing Jesus of forgiving sins the wrong way. That's the wrong way, Jesus. Let me walk us through, show you how I draw that conclusion. There in 517, we see Jesus settling into his preaching ministry, and he's created such a stir. He has such a reputation that, look in the text, there are Religious leaders from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Jesus has quite a collection of people showing up to hear him teach and preach, and he's in somebody's house. It's standing room only, and he's doing his thing. Turns out there's this group of friends who want to bring their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. Somehow they knew what Jesus was about, but they show up at that house and it's crowded. So what are they going to do? They're creative. I love, I love their initiative and ingenuity. They climb up on the roof. Now, 
I know it's not explicit in the text, but I can't help but notice that this paralyzed man has some really good friends. And even though we just started, I want to ask you, do you have a couple friends like this? Do you, do you have a couple friends that would do anything to get you in front of Jesus? Because if you're here and, and you don't have a couple friends like that, a couple friends that would go to extreme lengths, even tear up some guy's poor roof for you, would you, we'd love to have you plug in here. It seems to me ladies do this a little easier. Fellas, if you don't have a couple good friends, would you talk to somebody? We'd like to get you a couple friends who will do anything to get you face to face with Jesus. Well, that's what's going on in our text. They've open the roof, they're lowering the paralyzed man down. I'm just imagining if I'm that guy, I'm like, be careful. <laughs> and they're like, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> you already can't walk, bro. <laughs> well, Jesus catches us off guard because the first, because we're expecting he's going to see the guy and heal him, but that's not the first thing. Look in the text. First thing Jesus does is forgive the man's sins. What? So you got these religious leaders from all these different cities sitting around the room going, what in the world is this guy doing? Because that's not how you forgive sins. And, and in their view, it wasn't. See, to forgive, to forgive sins, well, first, only God forgives sins. That's the biggest issue. Who's this guy? Only God forgives sins. And, and the place that God forgives sins is in the temple. So we got a double whammy happening in our text. Who do you think you are? Because this is not the way you forgive sins. God forgives sins. It happens in the temple. Turns out, Jesus really is God. So he can do whatever he wants. And in fact, proves he's God because he can read their minds you see that in the text? Verse 21, he can even read their thoughts. So he, verse 22, he, he, he says something to them like, well, tell me this. Which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal a paralyzed man? And, and of course, the logic of Jesus' question works like this. You can't actually objectively prove whether a person's sins are forgiven. Like they're in that house there's no thermometer to discern, well, did he get his sins forgiven or not? We can't know that. But what you can know objectively is whether a paralyzed man can stand up and walk out the house. That we can measure. And so Jesus' logic is, which is easier, forgive sins or tell the paralyzed man to walk, which means if he walks, you can trust, I forgave his sins. The logic of the question is stunning. The religious leaders say nothing. And then look at 24. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' title for himself, that's, that's a Daniel reference, Daniel 7, where, where the Son of Man has authority. So, so by saying this, Jesus is going, so you know I have authority as the Son of Man? I have authority to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus is brilliant here. And, and what he's doing is confronting the old way they thought about sins. But basically, his message is this. Religious leaders, you think it's only God and the temple, but I'm here bringing a new way. Here's the change. I, Jesus, forgive sins wherever I want. That's confrontation number one. Luke wants us to see. Move with me to challenge or confrontation number two. In the words of the religious leaders, they'd say something like this. That's the wrong type of people to befriend, Jesus. It's the wrong type of people to befriend. After this incredible healing, Jesus sees a tax collector named Levi. Do you see that there in verse 27? Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Understand, context. This, this tax collector was hated. He was ethnically Jewish, but he made his money, and a lot of it, by charging people that were his kin double tax, and he'd keep the half. Not only were they hated for kind of siding with the Romans, taking advantage of their own kin, they were also often religiously unclean. And if you're a holy man, you're not hanging out with religiously unclean people. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, Levi and his friends were a bunch of vulgar sinners. So the shock is that Jesus says, follow me. And then look in the text. Jesus ends up at a big party that Levi's hosting for all the tax collector friends and Jesus. So here is the brilliant Jesus sitting at a party at Levi's house. And the religious leaders don't like it. So they say to Jesus' disciples, why is Jesus hanging out with those nasty people? It's my version. Jesus, those aren't the kind of people we're supposed to hang out with. Look at Jesus' response. It's again stunning, middle of 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Jesus is doing here is confronting the religious leader's old way of thinking that, that it's a good idea to quarantine ourselves off from sinners because we don't want any of their sin cooties getting on us. But that's not the new way Jesus is bringing. That's not the right way. See, Jesus' mission, summarized in Luke 19.10, to seek sinners and save the lost, is for these types of people. He's saying to the religious leaders, look, when you get sick, you don't make yourself well and then go visit the doctor. Dummies, my interpretation again, it's the sick who go to the doctors to get healthy. And you got to know, religious leaders, that's what I'm about. I am about helping sick people get well. 
So Jesus is confronting the philosophy of friendship that the religious leaders held, bringing a brand new way to befriend those who need repentance. Confrontation number two, complete. Move with me to number three as Jesus confronts spiritual disciplines. In the mouth of the religious leaders, they would have said something like this. That's the wrong way to practice the spiritual disciplines, Jesus. Look at verse 33. Look there. The religious leaders ask this question. Why do your disciples eat and drink when all the others fast and pray? Can you just hear the smug self-righteousness? Why do you guys enjoy all that food all the time? Don't you know to be really religious is to not like food? Skip meals all the time to show God how serious we are. You guys aren't doing that. Jesus, he's stunning in his response again as he's confronting this old way and inviting, he's inviting change to these religious leaders. The very people who should have known who the Messiah was, he's, giving, he's, he's patiently giving them a new pathway. And he says to them something like this, y'all acting like it's a funeral up in here, but it's a wedding. It's time to eat and drink because I'm here. Quit acting like it's a funeral. Have some food. Now, culturally, it would benefit you to know that what I learned is in a Jewish wedding, it wasn't uncommon for some people to fast in preparation for the wedding that day. So so you wake up in that morning, you don't eat anything until the wedding celebration. And it would be weird for them to eat nothing and then get to the wedding and still eat nothing. Like, I think it's like Thanksgiving for us. Some of us, show of hands, don't eat breakfast. <laughs> it's like, man, I got Thanksgiving coming, baby. <laughs> don't you fill me up with any of that cereal. I want the good stuff. And so we don't eat breakfast, and we watch a few parades, and we get ready for Thanksgiving. And, and by 2 o'clock or whenever you have Thanksgiving lunch, man, you hungry. But this is what it'd be like to get to Thanksgiving lunch, and you're with your family, and they're like, why aren't you eating? And you're like, because I'm waiting on this good meal. Bro, it's, it's on right now. This is the meal you've been waiting for. No, man, I'm going to wait till later. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's what Jesus is saying. The time is now. I'm the bridegroom. It's time, it's time to eat. And then this, then this, little section here from verse 36 to 39 where Jesus gives three different word pictures. It's what Miss Elizabeth read to us at the beginning of the service. And, and for this passage, it was the most dense for me to understand what Jesus is doing here. But, but lean in. Let me explain these three things because once you get it, the whole, the whole passage clicks so nicely. Look at 36. Jesus tells this story about ruining a new garment to try to fix an old garment. And And as you look there, here's what Jesus is saying. When an old garment gets all nasty and ratty, you wouldn't take a new garment, cut a hole out of it to try to patch the old garment because it won't match. What you've done is ruin both. You've ruined both. That's 36. 
in verse 37, he says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because, and the way the chemistry works, I've actually never owned a wineskin, is what I've been told. You put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins burst, and now you have a broken old wineskin and you've lost all the new wine. So again, you can't combine the old with the new. Those two word pictures are nearly identical. The point being, there's this old thing, and there's this new thing, and you can't just combine them together. They are, they are two different things. Verse 39, Jesus says, those who like the old wine don't want to try new wine. And, and this was the part that was so confusing to me, church, because, because I know from a different passage that Jesus says old wine is good, and I was importing this other thing, that old wine is good, onto this text, but that's not what Luke is saying here. Luke's not saying the old wine's the good wine here. He's got a different point. He's saying, the religious leaders, you like your old wine, but I'm bringing new wine. But you won't drink it. You won't drink it because you love your old wine too much. And when given the option... You want, the, you want the old standby wine that, that you know is familiar and comfortable and predictable? Or do you want this new thing? You religious leaders keep picking that old stuff. You won't try my new thing. And that makes sense to us, right? Like when you go out to eat at one of your favorite restaurants, you pick the same thing you always pick. Or at least I do. I like sombreros. When we go for lunch, I want a chimichanga with shrimp. I don't want it with chicken. I do not want it with pork. Oh, you should try it with chicken or pork. No, I already know what I like. Give me the shrimp one. Thank you. That's the heart of the religious leaders. I like my old way of doing things. I'm not trying your new wine. Jesus' point is this. I didn't come to try to make your old wine taste a little better. I didn't come to make your old garment of religious system have a little patch put on it. I'm bringing a brand new thing. I've got a new garment for you. I've got new wine. You should try it. It's the best. In modern terms, it would be like taking your old gasoline car. I have a 2008 Mazda out there. Driving it to the Tesla charger trying to plug in my Mazda and hoping I have a full tank of gas. I left that car there for three days and I still left with it empty in gas. Is he kidding? I'm not sure. <laughs> you can't take an old empty gas tank of your car and get an electrical charge and fill it up with gas. That's not how it works. If you want to use that electrical charging system, you need a new car. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, pastor, but, but what is this old thing? You keep saying Jesus is bringing a new thing, but what is the old thing? Because, because are you saying he's rejecting the Old Testament? Or are you saying he's rejecting the law? Or is Jesus rejecting the temple? Because I thought all these things were good things. So what is the old thing, pastor? That's, that's a great question. He, here's... Here's what we need to understand. The problem was not the Old Testament or the temple or the law. Those are good things. 
The problem was that the religious leaders had co-opted all of those things in an effort to add all this extra junk to what God had ordained and then use all of these extra rules and extra procedures and, and here's how we now do friends and here's how we actually think about sins being forgiven and, and here's actually how we do spiritual disciplines. They had mutilated all of God's heart, added all this stuff to it, and then tried to use those new practices that they had invented to declare themselves righteous before God. And you got to get this crucial difference. It's not that the Old Testament, God's law, the temple was wrong. It's that they were trying to use all of that to justify themselves before God. Saying, we are now righteous and better than everybody else because, because we follow all these rules we've invented. And so God is pleased with us. And Jesus is saying, that's the old way. Because it is actually impossible for humans to use the Old Testament, the law, or the temple to make themselves righteous. The only way you can make yourself righteous is, is if you follow the new way of Jesus. Has come to fulfill the Old Testament, the law, and the temple. Jesus is saying, it's not you follow all the rules and then you'll be righteous. Jesus is saying, follow me and you can be righteous. That's the new way. Third section done. Jesus' challenge is, do you want the old way of saving yourself? Because that's the old garment. That's the old wine. Or do you want the new way of finding salvation that's in Jesus. One more challenge remaining. Look in our text, 6.1 to 6.11. In the words of the religious leaders, they would say, that's the wrong way to be religious, Jesus. This one's all about Sabbath. And in case you're here and you forgot over breakfast to brush up on Old Testament Sabbath regulations, here's a quote that helps us understand how important Sabbath would be from Edwards, who wrote a commentary on this section. He, he writes, Sabbath was the defining characteristic of Judaism, the observance of which, even more than circumcision, determined one as an observant Jew. Sabbath raised the stakes between Jesus and the Jewish religious system and allowed Jesus then to make pronouncements regarding Sabbath as prime example of the new versus the old. This Sabbath confrontation then was the zenith of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So, so look at 6.2. Pharisees are watching Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath feeding themselves. And they ask, Jesus, why are you breaking the work rules on Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. Jesus, again, incredible in his response, referencing 1 Samuel 21, saying, hey, I know you guys think we're working on the Sabbath, and according to your man-made rules, you think we were doing something wrong, but my interpretation, religious leaders, have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever read the Old Testament? Because they're in 1 Samuel 21. This is what David does. Jesus' point is this. If we're sinning, then so was King David. But nobody thinks King David was sinning. 
And you all aren't going to say he was sinning. So we're not either. So while the Pharisees thought, you're not being religious in the right ways, Jesus uses 1 Samuel 21 to make his case. And then verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, this stunning announcement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning, Sabbath isn't about all y'all religious leaders and your expectation. It's actually all about me, which we find out later in the New Testament, points to the rest that we actually have in Jesus, that we don't have to do work to find our salvation. We can rest. You don't have to follow all the rules today perfectly, church, to get salvation. You can rest in Christ. That's what the Sabbath is about. Verse 6, on a different Sabbath day, Pharisees are watching Jesus again. Is he going to heal this man with a withered hand? Jesus reads minds again, verse 8, asks the man, would you please stand front and center, man with a withered hand? Don't know exactly what it is, but something's not working right there for him. And Jesus says, I ask you, scribes and Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And I think they know what the answer is, but they don't give an answer because it's going to incriminate themselves. So Jesus just looks at them. See that in verse 10? And after looking around at all of them, he heals the man with the withered hand. When they get so mad at him, they begin to strategize, verse 11, what they might do with Jesus. An early indication of what's going to meet Jesus as he's confronted this old garment, this old wine, this old way of doing religion. Now, now we started this sermon talking about how none of us really like change. And my sense is the way I don't like change is maybe the way you don't like change. It's like the way the Grinch thinks of Christmas. Or the way some of us think about AFC championships, you know, whatever. Hate, hate, hate. I hate that. I hate change. I don't want to park so I don't want to sit somewhere else. I don't want to do this new procedure. I hate it. That's all fine and dandy. We can smile about that. But I just want you to know that the religious leaders don't feel about Jesus like the Grinch feels about Christmas. The, the religious leaders actually hate Jesus. They hate Jesus so much that they're going to actually murder him. They're going to violate their Old Testament law that they keep telling everybody they've, they're so clean-handed and have pure hearts before the Lord because they follow all the rules. They're going to violate their own moral compass because that's how bad they hate Jesus and the change he's bringing. Leads me to wonder how many of us are so committed to our old ways of thinking about religion that when confronted with a change we like the religious leaders hate it what I want you to get church is having walked through this text Jesus isn't challenging and confronting the old religious ways just for kicks and giggles he's not sitting around with his disciples going hey guys watch this I'm going to say something that's going to make them go crazy I'm, I'm just going to push some buttons watch it fly now Jesus isn't just trying to make people upset just 
for the sake of it. Rather, Jesus is bringing a new way and he's confronting the old religious way because it's going to lead them to death. And he's here to give life. So he's not just trying to be this annoying siblings. Some of you do this to your siblings. You just say things because you know it's going to rile them up. You say, oh man, I'm going to say this thing because they're going to blow their top. I can't wait. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I've got a new garment, I've got a new way, and frankly, it's the only way. This is the only way you're going to be saved. For us then, the question becomes, are we going to stick with our old ways of saving ourselves? Or are we going to adopt Jesus' new way? And that leads us to application, and here's then the first question for application. The first question of application that deeply connects with Jesus' first point how are your sins forgiven? How are your sins forgiven? This is what Jesus is confronting with that paralyzed man coming down, asking the religious leaders, inviting them to consider, how are your sins forgiven? And so for us today, church, this is the dominant application from this text. You need to answer the question, how were your sins forgiven? But I imagine that there are some here who don't actually think they need their sins forgiven. Or perhaps you're thinking about a friend that you're praying will come to know Jesus, and, and they would say, yeah, I don't need sins to be forgiven. But, but, but for anybody who's there, who goes, this question's ridiculous, because I don't even have sins, I would ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever failed to live up to your own expectations of yourself? Have you ever just failed to live up to your own expectations? It seems to me, if you're honest... If you're honest, you would have to admit, at some point, somewhere down the road, there was a moment when you did not live up to your own expectations. And if you're willing to grant you haven't lived up to your own expectations, then I wonder, how do you think you compare to God's expectations? See, if you grant the premise that there's a God, you must grant he's got expectations that are far above yours. So if you haven't lived up to your own how have you done with his? The Bible uses the word sin, which actually comes from bow and arrow, metaphor. You might know this. The idea is to shoot an arrow and hit the bullseye. Sin is missing the mark. I want to know, have you missed the mark? Have you missed the mark? If you're here and you're still like, no man, I've, I've never sinned in my life. I'm genuinely fascinated that you would hold that view. And, and I'm inviting you. I'd love to talk to you. Not, not to be a hammer. I'd gently just like to have a conversation to really consider if you've never in your whole life missed the mark. I think there's folks who hold that far more popular in my view. I think friends from my neighborhood, perhaps friends from your neighborhood, they would grant I've missed the mark. But when they think about how to forgive sins, or some of us in here, the way we think about forgiving sins, is we just think, well, I know I've messed up, but I have to do more good than bad. That's how I can have my sins forgiven. This is really popular in our culture. If I can just, if I can just do more good than bad, and you showed up this morning because you're just trying to make sure you've got a lot of good stuff on your resume. I came to church, man. I even gave some money in the offering. I'm doing some good stuff. I'm nice to people. I'm trying to make up for it. But what you've got to understand is that's the old garment. That's the old wine. And that doesn't, that doesn't work with Jesus. 
Jesus is bringing a new way to save. If, if, if it's not about trying enough, another way folks try, and, and maybe the, together, the other way folks try is just by being really sad about their sins. And people have this, somehow have decided that if they're just, if they're just sincere enough and authentic enough about how sad they are, that will bring forgiveness. If I can just cry enough, that's why, that's what, that's what forgives sins. Genuine sorrow. And so this person walks around and just does modern day penance. They tell people, I'm a really awful person. I've done this really awful thing. I just wish I wasn't so bad. And they just kind of punish themselves thinking, man, if I could just cry hard enough, I am going to find forgiveness. And, and what I wish all of us to understand is that this idea of trying harder or, or crying more is really a synthesis of every world religion there is except Christianity. Every religion, every worldview, most of our friends and neighbors, they believe in some version of try or cry. That's how you forgive sins. And that's the old way. The new way is believe and receive. If you're here and you've been thinking, try or cry, try or cry, that's how I'm going to be saved. Here, the new way. This is the new garment. This is the new way. Believe and receive. Here's the gospel moment, the most beautiful part of the whole sermon, John 1.12. Here's what John writes. To all who did receive Jesus, those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe it, church. It's not try or cry. Believe and receive. That's not my quote, but I wish it was because it's baller. You can find forgiveness in Jesus. Question number two for application, much quicker now. Who are you befriending? From this section of where Jesus gets accused of having the wrong friends, who are you befriending? Are we following Jesus' new way, engaging with the spiritually sick? Or are we like the religious elite Keeping our distance from anybody who might get some sin cooties on us. Jesus never distanced himself from the spiritual hungry. The spiritually hungry always had access to Jesus. And let us repent, church, if any of us think to ourselves, they better clean themselves up before I talk to them about Jesus. The sin sick need Jesus. So let's help them get to Dr. Jesus. Go tell them about Jesus' new way. Be like these friends of the paralyzed man and grab somebody who's sin sick and say, I know how you can find healing. And if they don't want to go, they don't want to go. That's on them. But please, please don't ignore the spiritually sin sick because you have this feeling that they're culturally vulgar. Man, I'm glad that God had grace on all of us in here who are spiritually vulgar in his eyes. He sent people to befriend us. If you're concerned that you might invite somebody to Mill Creek who's so scandalous, some of us might have an allergic reaction to them, let me just say this. That's exactly who you should invite. Please invite them. And God have mercy on any of us who have an allergic reaction. 
Let's go share the message of the gospel with people who know they're sin sick. Who are you befriending? Question number three, are you fasting? Man, this isn't a popular application. <laughs> but it's right here in our text. Jesus expects his disciples to fast when he's gone. In case you missed the memo, he's gone. Good news. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he's having a wedding party. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be the best party you've ever been at. It's going to be the best feast you've ever been at. You've been at some cool weddings, I'm sure. But the food ain't nothing like this one. Whatever wine you had at this party, it's nothing like the new wine in the new heavens and the new earth. There is coming a party. And, and, and at that wedding supper of the Lamb, we will not be fasting. Or if anybody is fasting, you know, come on, bro, what's wrong with you? But today we fast. Today we fast in obedience to what the Bible implies, that this is the time we fast. If you need some practical help, what does that even look like? Please talk to one of our elders. Talk to life group leaders. Talk to some of our staff. This is the time we fast and pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Final application, do you care for the hungry and disabled? In our text, we see the Sabbath and Pharisees weaponizing they're weaponizing that Sabbath, trying to keep disciples hungry, trying to keep the withered man's hand lame. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't have said we're weaponizing the Sabbath, but that's exactly what they're doing. And Jesus confronted that old way and, and is explaining true religion should never be used as an excuse to avoid good. Church, true religion cares about justice. We do not tolerate injustice. We care for those who are weak and defenseless. They'd speak out for themselves if they could, but they're weak and defenseless. So we stand up and we go after them. We care for them. James 1.27. James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their infliction. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Man, we're all surrounded by poor and powerless people in our lives. Let's commit to doing something for those that the world is ignoring. And I'm wanting to mobilize you. Be Christian in all of your different neighborhoods and places you work. And what I'm not saying is we need to start a new ministry for everything, though I'm fine if that's what God wants us to do. Most importantly, I'm wanting us to live consistent with what the scriptures say. Let us care for the hungry and disabled that God puts in your life. If God puts a hungry person in your life today, give them some food. If you've got defenseless people in your circle of relationships, care. Help them. Will any of this be easy? No. Having come to the end of this text and the end of our sermon, I'm just, I'm sensitive that this is hard. This is heavy. But change always is. None of it's comfortable. But by grace, we want to take this new garment, this new wine, and we want to be the kind of community that Jesus is offering. So church, reject any old ways that you're trying to find self-salvation. 
and adopt this new way of Jesus. The fruit of Jesus' new way will be seen in the way we answer these questions. May today's text, this confrontation and challenge then, be a gift to us, inviting us to become more like Christ's new people. Will you pray with me that these truths would be manifest in our lives? Lord, we thank you for your word, and I do pray that you might do such a work in our lives that we would be those following drinking the new wine. We love you, Lord. For those here who don't know you, Holy Spirit, save today. For those of us who need to be confronted, do it. Take the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Good morning. Our uh, scripture this morning is Luke five seventeen through uh, I'm sorry five seventeen through six eleven, and I will be reading verses thirty three through thirty nine. You can find that on page five ninety four in the chairback Bibles in front of you. Uh, verses thirty three through thirty nine, and they said to him, "The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink." And Jesus said to them. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you have given us to come together to worship. Be with Jeremy now as we open your word and give us discernment to hear what you would have to say to us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Liz. Seems to me everybody hates change. Whether it's a new policy at work, new place that you're supposed to park when you go there, something at the school you attend kids or parents some way that you have to do procedure at school that they change. Think, man, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Why you got to be changing stuff on me? Some of you recently had somebody sit in your spot here in the worship center, and you're thinking, didn't you know that was my place? When we getting some name plates on my seat so they don't be taking it. I don't think any of us like change. I do grant, though, there may be a few of you who go, well, I do. I love change, Pastor. 
And it's my theory, if you're here and you actually would put yourself in the I love change category, it's because you're the one bringing the change. <laughs> oh, I love change too when I'm calling the shots on it. This is a great change. I'm, Honey, I've got a change for us to have in the house. And this is for your good, girl. I'm looking out for you. We, I think we, we like change when we're the ones instituting it. For the, for the rest of people who are down the mountain from the decision-making and the change happens to us, that's, that's no fun. I don't, think, I don't think anybody likes change. We don't want to have to adapt. We're comfortable. I like the predictable. Just don't move my cheese. Just let me do my thing. In our text today, some of the main characters have this attitude of, I don't like change either. And what Luke wants us to do in this section, and this is a pretty big section, 5.11, or, or 5.17 to 6.11, in this section, what, what we're going to be invited to do is identify with the main characters in this text who don't want to change either. We're going to be called to identify spiritually with the people in our text who don't want to change either. And those people are the religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes. In our text, they're called teachers of the law. And if, and if you're here and you're like, time out, bro, those are the bad guys. You, you want me to identify with the bad guys in the text? Pastor, pastor, I just show up. I come to this worship service, I, I hear the Bible preached, I read the Bible, I do what it says. Why are you making me identify with the bad guys? Know that, know that they say the same thing as well. If, if we could interview the bad guys in our text, they'd say, I just read the Bible and do what it says, why am I the bad guy? And... What I want us to consider this morning is we may have more in common with the religious leaders, these Pharisees, teachers of the law, than we'd like to admit. And I know our tendency when we read the Bible is to put ourselves on the good guys. You know, Pastor, I'm going to identify with Jesus on this one. I want to too, but that's the wrong character. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open up to our preaching passage today, we're going to walk through four confrontations that Jesus has with these religious leaders, and, and we're going to see four ways that Jesus is saying, even though you may go, I'm just reading the Bible and do what it says, you're off. And as we walk through our text, it's going to invite us to consider, are there some ways that you and I need to change? Are there some old comfortable patterns that we may think, I just feel safe in my predictable religious system, Pastor, that even this morning, Jesus is calling you to reconsider? There in the scriptures, look at 5.17, we begin with the first confrontation Jesus has with the religious leaders, and, and the title of this section for us, I... I've put it this way, that's the wrong way to forgive sins. 
in the mouth of the religious leaders, this section is accusing Jesus of forgiving sins the wrong way. That's the wrong way, Jesus. Let me walk us through, show you how I draw that conclusion. There in 517, we see Jesus settling into his preaching ministry, and he's created such a stir. He has such a reputation that, look in the text, there are religious leaders from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Jesus has quite a collection of people showing up to hear him teach and preach, and he's in somebody's house. It's standing room only, and he's doing his thing. Turns out there's this group of friends who want to bring their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. Somehow they knew what Jesus was about, but they show up at that house and it's crowded. So what are they going to do? They're creative. I love, I love their initiative and ingenuity. They climb up on the roof. Now, I know it's not explicit in the text, but I can't help but notice that this paralyzed man has some really good friends. And even though we just started, I want to ask you, do you have a couple friends like this? Do you, do you have a couple friends that would do anything to get you in front of Jesus? Because if you're here and, and you don't have a couple friends like that, a couple friends that would go to extreme lengths, even tear up some guy's poor roof for you, would you, we'd love to have you plug in here. It seems to me ladies do this a little easier. Fellas, if you don't have a couple good friends, would you talk to somebody? We'd like to get you a couple friends who will do anything to get you face to face with Jesus. Well, that's what's going on in our text. They've opened the roof. They're lowering the paralyzed man down. I'm just imagining if I'm that guy, I'm like, be careful. <laughs> and they're like, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> You already can't walk, bro. <laughs> well, Jesus catches us off guard because the first, because we're expecting he's going to see the guy and heal him, but that's not the first thing. Look in the text. The first thing Jesus does is forgive the man's sins. What? So you got these religious leaders from all these different cities sitting around the room going, what in the world is this guy doing? Because that's not how you forgive sins. And, and in their view, it wasn't. See, to forgive, to forgive sins, well, first, only God forgives sins. That's the biggest issue. Who's this guy? Only God forgives sins. And, and the place that God forgives sins is in the temple. So we got a double whammy happening in our text. Who do you think you are? Because this is not the way you forgive sins. God forgives sins. It happens in the temple. Turns out, Jesus really is God. So he can do whatever he wants. And in fact, proves he's God because he can read their minds. Do you see that in the text? Verse 21, he can even read their thoughts. So he... Verse 22, he, he, he says something to them like, well, tell me this. Which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal a paralyzed man? And, and of course, the logic of Jesus' question works like this. You can't actually objectively prove whether a person's sins are forgiven. 
Like there in that house, there's no thermometer to discern, well, did he get his sins forgiven or not? We can't know that. But what you can know objectively is whether a paralyzed man can stand up and walk out the house. That we can measure. And so Jesus' logic is, which is easier, forgive sins or tell the paralyzed man to walk, which means if he walks, you can trust I forgave his sins. The logic of the question is stunning. The religious leaders say nothing. And then look at 24. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' title for himself, that's, that's a Daniel reference, Daniel 7, where, where the Son of Man has authority. So, so by saying this, Jesus is going, so you know I have authority as the Son of Man? I have authority to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus is brilliant here. And, and what he's doing is confronting the old way they thought about sins. Basically, his message is this. Religious leaders, you think it's only God and the temple, but I'm here bringing a new way. Here's the change. I, Jesus, forgive sins wherever I want. That's confrontation number one. Luke wants us to see. Move with me to challenge or confrontation number two. In the words of the religious leaders, they'd say something like this. That's the wrong type of people to befriend, Jesus. It's the wrong type of people to befriend. After this incredible healing, Jesus sees a tax collector named Levi. Do you see that there in verse 27? Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Understand, context. This, this tax collector was hated. He was ethnically Jewish, but he made his money, and a lot of it, by charging people that were his kin double tax, and he'd keep the half. Not only were they hated for kind of siding with the Romans, taking advantage of their own kin, they were also often religiously unclean. And if you're a holy man, you're not hanging out with religiously unclean people. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, Levi and his friends were a bunch of vulgar sinners. So the shock is that Jesus says, follow me. And then look in the text. Jesus ends up at a big party that Levi's hosting for all the tax collector friends and Jesus. So here is the brilliant Jesus sitting at a party at Levi's house. And the religious leaders don't like it. So they say to Jesus' disciples, why is Jesus hanging out with those nasty people? It's my version. Jesus, those aren't the kind of people we're supposed to hang out with. Look at Jesus' response. It's again stunning, middle of 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, 
32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Jesus is doing here is confronting the religious leader's old way of thinking that that it's a good idea to quarantine ourselves off from sinners because we don't want any of their sin cooties getting on us. But that's not the new way Jesus is bringing. That's not the right way. See, Jesus' mission, summarized in Luke 19.10, to seek sinners and save the lost is for these types of people. He's saying to the religious leaders, look, when you get sick, you don't make yourself well and then go visit the doctor. Dummies, my interpretation again, it's the sick who go to the doctors to get healthy. And you got to know, religious leaders, that's what I'm about. I am about helping sick people get well. So Jesus is confronting the philosophy of friendship that the religious leaders held, bringing a brand new way to befriend those who need repentance. Confrontation number two, complete. Move with me to number three as Jesus confronts spiritual disciplines in the mouth of the religious leaders. They would have said something like this. That's the wrong way to practice the spiritual disciplines, Jesus. Look at verse 33. Look there. The religious leaders ask this question. Why do your disciples eat and drink when all the others fast and pray? Can you just hear the smug self-righteousness? Why do you guys enjoy all that food all the time? Don't you know to be really religious is to not like food? Skip meals all the time to show God how serious we are. You guys aren't doing that. Jesus, he's stunning in his response again as he's confronting this old way and inviting, he's inviting change to these religious leaders. The very people who should have known who the Messiah was, he's giving, he's, he's patiently giving them a new pathway and he says to them something like this, y'all acting like it's a funeral up in here, but it's a wedding. It's time to eat and drink because I'm here. Quit acting like it's a funeral. Have some food. Now, culturally, it would benefit you to know that what I learned is in a Jewish wedding, it wasn't uncommon for some people to fast in preparation for the wedding that day. So, so you wake up in that morning, you don't eat anything un until the wedding celebration. And it would be weird for them to eat nothing and then get to the wedding and still eat nothing. Like, I think it's like Thanksgiving for us. Some of us, show of hands, don't eat breakfast. <laughs> it's like, man, I got Thanksgiving coming, baby. <laughs> don't you fill me up with any of that cereal. I want the good stuff. And so we don't eat breakfast, and we watch a few parades, and we get ready for Thanksgiving. And, and by 2 o'clock or whenever you have Thanksgiving lunch, man, you hungry. But this is what it'd be like to get to Thanksgiving lunch, and you're with your family, and they're like, why aren't you eating? And you're like, because I'm waiting on this good meal. 
bro, it's, it's all right now. This is the meal you've been waiting for. No, man, I'm going to wait till later. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's what Jesus is saying. The time is now. I'm the bridegroom. It's time, it's time to eat. And then this, then this little section here from verse 36 to 39 where Jesus gives three different word pictures. It's what Miss Elizabeth read to us at the beginning of the service. And, and for this passage, it was the most dense for me to understand what Jesus is doing here. But, but lean in. Let me explain these three things because once you get it, the whole, the whole passage clicks so nicely. Look at 36. Jesus tells this story about ruining a new garment to try to fix an old garment. And, and as you look there, here's what Jesus is saying. When an old garment gets all nasty and ratty, you wouldn't take a new garment, cut a hole out of it to try to patch the old garment because it won't match. What you've done is ruin both. You've ruined both. That's 36. In verse 37, he says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because, and the way the chemistry works, I've actually never owned a wineskin, is what I've been told. You put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins burst, and now you have a broken old wineskin and you've lost all the new wine. So again, you can't combine the old with the new. Those two word pictures are nearly identical. The point being, there's this old thing and there's this new thing, and you can't just combine them together. They are, they are two different things. Verse 39, Jesus says, those who like the old wine don't want to try new wine. And, and this was the part that was so confusing to me, church, because, because I know from a different passage that Jesus says old wine is good. And I was importing this other thing, that old wine is good, onto this text. But that's not what Luke is saying here. Luke's not saying the old wine's the good wine here. He's got a different point. He's saying, the religious leaders, you like your old wine, but I'm bringing new wine but you won't drink it. You won't drink it because you love your old wine too much. And when given the option, you want the, you want the old standby wine that, that you know is familiar and comfortable and predictable, or do you want this new thing, you religious leaders keep picking that old stuff. You won't try my new thing. And that makes sense to us, right? Like when you go out to eat at one of your favorite restaurants, you pick the same thing you always pick. Well, at least I do. I like sombreros. When we go for lunch, I want a chimichanga with shrimp. I don't want it with chicken. I do not want it with pork. Oh, you should try it with chicken or pork. No, I already know what I like. Give me the shrimp one. Thank you. That's the heart of the religious leaders. I like my old way of doing things. I'm not trying your new wine. Jesus' point is this. I didn't come to try to make your old wine taste a little better. I didn't come to make your old garment of religious system have a little patch put on it. I'm bringing a brand new thing. I've got a new garment for you. I've got new wine. You should try it. It's the best. In modern terms, it would be like taking your old gasoline car, I have a 2008 Mazda out there, driving it to the Tesla charger, trying to plug in my Mazda, 
and hoping I have a full tank of gas. I left that car there for three days and I still left with it empty and gas. Is he kidding? I'm not sure. <laughs> you can't take an old empty gas tank of your car and get an electrical charge and fill it up with gas. That's not how it works. If you want to use that electrical charging system, you need a new car. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, pastor, but, but what is this old thing? You keep saying Jesus is bringing a new thing, but what is the old thing? Because, because are you saying he's rejecting the Old Testament? Or are you saying he's rejecting the law? Or is Jesus rejecting the temple? Because I thought all these things were good things. So what is the old thing, pastor? That's, that's a great question. Here's, here's what we need to understand. The problem was not the Old Testament or the temple or the law. Those are good things. The problem was that the religious leaders had co-opted all of those things in an effort to add all this extra junk to what God had ordained and then use all of these extra rules and extra procedures and, and here's how we now do friends and here's how we actually think about sins being forgiven and, and here's actually how we do spiritual disciplines. They had mutilated all of God's heart, added all this stuff to it and then tried to use those new practices that they had invented to declare themselves righteous before God. And you got to get this crucial difference. It's not that the Old Testament, God's law, the temple was wrong. It's that they were trying to use all of that to justify themselves before God. Saying, we are now righteous and better than everybody else because... Because we follow all these rules we've invented. And so God is pleased with us. And Jesus is saying, that's the old way. Because it is actually impossible for humans to use the Old Testament, the law, or the temple to make themselves righteous. The only way you can make yourself righteous is, is if you follow the new way of Jesus. Has come to fulfill the Old Testament, the law, and the temple. Jesus is saying, it's not you follow all the rules and then you'll be righteous. Jesus is saying, follow me and you can be righteous. That's the new way. Third section done. Jesus' challenge is, do you want the old way of saving yourself? Because that's the old garment. That's the old wine. Or do you want the new way? of finding salvation that's in Jesus. One more challenge remaining. Look in our text, 6.1 to 6.11. In the words of the religious leaders, they would say, that's the wrong way to be religious, Jesus. This one's all about Sabbath. And in case you're here and you forgot over breakfast to brush up on Old Testament Sabbath regulations, here's a quote that helps us understand how important Sabbath would be from Edwards, who wrote a commentary on this section, he, he writes, Sabbath was the defining characteristic of Judaism, the observance of which, even more than circumcision, determined one as an observant Jew. Sabbath raised the stakes between Jesus and the Jewish religious system. 
and allowed Jesus then to make pronouncements regarding Sabbath as prime example of the new versus the old. This Sabbath confrontation then was the zenith of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So, so look at 6-2. Pharisees are watching Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath feeding themselves. And they ask, Jesus, why are you breaking the work rules on Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. Jesus, again, incredible in his response, referencing 1 Samuel 21, saying, hey, I know you guys think we're working on the Sabbath, and according to your man-made rules, you think we were doing something wrong, but my interpretation, religious leaders, have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever read the Old Testament? Because they're in 1 Samuel 21. This is what David does. Jesus' point is this. If we're sinning, then so was King David. But nobody thinks King David was sinning. And <laughs> y'all aren't going to say he was sinning. So we're not either. So while the Pharisees thought, you're not being religious in the right ways, Jesus uses 1 Samuel 21 to make his case. And then verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, this stunning announcement, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning, Sabbath isn't about all y'all religious leaders and your expectation. It's actually all about me, which we find out later in the New Testament. Points to the rest that we actually have in Jesus, that we don't have to do work to find our salvation. We can rest. You don't have to follow all the rules today perfectly, church, to get salvation. You can rest in Christ. That's what the Sabbath is about. Verse 6, on a different Sabbath day. Pharisees are watching Jesus again. Is he going to heal this man with a withered hand? Jesus reads minds again, verse 8, asks the man, would you please stand front and center, man with a withered hand? Don't know exactly what it is, but something's not working right there for him. And Jesus says, I ask you, scribes and Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And I think they know what the answer is. But they don't give an answer. Because it's going to incriminate themselves. So Jesus just looks at them. See that in verse 10? And after looking around at all of them, he heals the man with the withered hand. And they get so mad at him, they begin to strategize, verse 11, what they might do with Jesus. An early indication of what's going to meet Jesus as he's confronted this old garment, this old wine, this old way of doing religion. Now, now we started this sermon talking about how none of us really like change. And my sense is the way I don't like change is maybe the way you don't like change. It's like the way the Grinch thinks of Christmas. Or the way some of us think about AFC championships, you know, whatever. Hate, hate, hate. I hate that. I hate change. I don't want to park so I don't want to sit somewhere else. I don't want to do this new procedure. I hate it. That's all fine and dandy. We can smile about that. But I just want you to know that the religious leaders don't feel about Jesus like the Grinch feels about Christmas. The, the religious leaders actually hate Jesus. 
They hate Jesus so much that they're going to actually murder him. They're going to violate their Old Testament law that they keep telling everybody they've, they're so clean-handed and have pure hearts before the Lord because they follow all the rules. They're going to violate their own moral compass because that's how bad they hate Jesus and the change he's bringing. Leads me to wonder how many of us are so committed to our old ways of thinking about religion that when confronted with a change, we, like the religious leaders, hate it. What I want you to get, church, is having walked through this text, Jesus isn't challenging and confronting the old religious ways just for kicks and giggles. He's not sitting around with his disciples going, hey guys, watch this. I'm going to say something that's going to make them go crazy. I'm, I'm just going to push some buttons. Watch it fly now. Jesus isn't just trying to make people upset just for the sake of it. Rather, Jesus is bringing a new way and he's confronting the old religious way because it's going to lead them to death. And he's here to give life. So he's not just trying to be this annoying siblings. Some of you do this to your siblings. You just say things because you know it's going to rile them up. You say, oh man, I'm going to say this thing because they're going to blow their top. I can't wait. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I've got a new garment. I've got a new way. And frankly, it's the only way. This is the only way you're going to be saved. For us then, the question becomes, are we going to stick with our old ways of saving ourselves? Or are we going to adopt Jesus' new way? And that leads us to application. And here's then the first question for application. The first question of application that deeply connects with Jesus' first point how are your sins forgiven? How are your sins forgiven? This is what Jesus is confronting with that paralyzed man coming down, asking the religious leaders, inviting them to consider, how are your sins forgiven? And so for us today, church, this is the dominant application from this text. You need to answer the question, how were your sins forgiven? But I imagine that there are some here who don't actually think they need their sins forgiven. Or perhaps you're thinking about a friend that you're praying will come to know Jesus, and, and they would say, yeah, I don't need sins to be forgiven. But, but for anybody who's there, who goes, this question's ridiculous, because I don't even have sins, I would ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever failed to live up to your own expectations of yourself? Have you ever just failed to live up to your own expectations? And it seems to me, if you're honest... If you're honest, you would have to admit, at some point, somewhere down the road, there was a moment when you did not live up to your own expectations. And if you're willing to grant you haven't lived up to your own expectations, then I wonder, how do you think you compare to God's expectations? See, if you grant the premise that there's a God, you must grant he's got expectations that are far above yours. So if you haven't lived up to your own how have you done with his? The Bible uses the word sin, which actually comes from bow and arrow, metaphor. You might know this. The idea is to shoot an arrow and hit the bullseye. Sin is missing the mark. I want to know, have you missed the mark? 
Have you missed the mark? If you're here and you're still like, no, man, I've, I've never sinned in my life, I'm genuinely fascinated that you would hold that view. And, and I'm inviting you. I'd love to talk to you. Not, not to be a hammer. I'd gently just like to have a conversation to really consider if you've never in your whole life missed the mark. I think there's folks who hold that far more popular in my view. I think friends from my neighborhood, perhaps friends from your neighborhood, they would grant I've missed the mark but when they think about how to forgive sins, or some of us in here, the way we think about forgiving sins, is we just think, well, I know I've messed up, but I have to do more good than bad. That's how I can have my sins forgiven. This is really popular in our culture. If I can just, if I can just do more good than bad, and you showed up this morning because you're just trying to make sure you've got a lot of good stuff on your resume. I came to church, man. I even gave some money in the offering. I'm doing some good stuff. I'm nice to people. I'm trying to make up for it. But what you got to understand is that's the old garment. That's the old wine. And that doesn't, that doesn't work with Jesus. Jesus is bringing a new way to save. If, if, if it's not about trying enough, another way folks try, and, and maybe the, together, the other way folks try is just by being really sad about their sins. And people have this, somehow have decided that if they're just, if they're just sincere enough, and authentic enough about how sad they are, that will bring forgiveness. If I can just cry enough, that's why, that's what, that's what forgives sins. Genuine sorrow. And so this person walks around and just does modern day penance. They tell people, I'm a really awful person. I've done this really awful thing. I just wish I wasn't so bad. And they just kind of punish themselves thinking, man, if I could just cry hard enough, I am going to find forgiveness and, and what I wish all of us to understand is that this idea of trying harder or, or crying more is really a synthesis of every world religion there is except Christianity. Every religion, every worldview, most of our friends and neighbors, they believe in some version of try or cry. That's how you forgive sins. And that's the old way. The new way is believe and receive. If you're here and you've been thinking, try or cry, try or cry, that's how I'm going to be saved. Here, the new way. This is the new garment. This is the new way. Believe and receive. Here's the gospel moment, the most beautiful part of the whole sermon, John 1.12. Here's what John writes. To all who did receive Jesus, those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe it, church. It's not try or cry. It's believe and receive. That's not my quote, but I wish it was because it's baller. You can find forgiveness in Jesus. Question number two for application, much quicker now. Who are you befriending? From this section of where Jesus gets accused of having the wrong friends, who are you befriending? Are we following Jesus' new way, engaging with the spiritually sick? Or are we like the religious elite, keeping our distance from anybody who might get some sin cooties on us? Jesus never distanced himself from the spiritual hungry. The spiritually hungry always had access to Jesus. And let us repent, church, if any of us think to ourselves... They better clean themselves up before I talk to them about Jesus. 
the sin sick need Jesus. So let's help them get to Dr. Jesus. Go tell them about Jesus' new way. Be like these friends of the paralyzed man and grab somebody who's sin sick and say, I know how you can find healing. And if they don't want to go, they don't want to go. That's on them. But please, please don't ignore the spiritually sin sick because you have this feeling that they're culturally vulgar. Man, I'm glad that God had grace on all of us in here who are spiritually vulgar in his eyes. He sent people to befriend us. If you're concerned that you might invite somebody to Mill Creek who's so scandalous, some of us might have an allergic reaction to them, let me just say this. That's exactly who you should invite. Please invite them. And God have mercy on any of us who have an allergic reaction. Let's go share the message of the gospel with people who know they're sin sick. Who are you befriending? Question number three, are you fasting? Man, this isn't a popular application. <laughs> but it's right here in our text. Jesus expects his disciples to fast when he's gone. In case you missed the memo, he's gone. Good news. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he's having a wedding party. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be the best party you've ever been at. It's going to be the best feast you've ever been at. You've been at some cool weddings, I'm sure. But the food ain't nothing like this one. Whatever wine you had at this party, it's nothing like the new wine in the new heavens and the new earth. There is coming a party. And, and, and at that wedding supper of the Lamb, we will not be fasting. Or if anybody is fasting, you know, come on, bro, what's wrong with you? But today we fast. Today we fast in obedience to what the Bible implies, that this is the time we fast. If you need some practical help, what does that even look like? Please talk to one of our elders. Talk to life group leaders. Talk to some of our staff. This is the time we fast and pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Final application, do you care for the hungry and disabled? In our text, we see the Sabbath and Pharisees weaponizing they're weaponizing that Sabbath, trying to keep disciples hungry, trying to keep the withered man's hand lame. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't have said we're weaponizing the Sabbath, but that's exactly what they're doing. And Jesus confronted that old way and, and is explaining true religion should never be used as an excuse to avoid good. Church, true religion cares about justice. We do not tolerate injustice. We care for those who are weak and defenseless. They'd speak out for themselves if they could, but they're weak and defenseless. So we stand up and we go after them. We care for them. James 1.27. James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their infliction. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Men, we're all surrounded by poor and powerless people in our lives. Let's commit to doing something for those that the world is ignoring. And I'm wanting to mobilize you. Be Christian in all of your different 
neighborhoods and places you work. And What I'm not saying is we need to start a new ministry for everything, though I'm fine if that's what God wants us to do. Most importantly, I'm wanting us to live consistent with what the scriptures say. Let us care for the hungry and disabled that God puts in your life. If God puts a hungry person in your life today, give them some food. If you've got defenseless people in your circle of relationships, care. Help them. Will any of this be easy? No. Having come to the end of this text and the end of our sermon, I'm just, I'm sensitive that this is hard. This is heavy. But change always is. None of it's comfortable. But by grace, we want to take this new garment, this new wine, and we want to be the kind of community that Jesus is offering. So church, reject any old ways that you're trying to find self-salvation and adopt this new way of Jesus. The fruit of Jesus' new way will be seen in the way we answer these questions. May today's text, this confrontation and challenge then, be a gift to us, inviting us to become more like Christ's new people. Will you pray with me that these truths would be manifest in our lives? Lord, we thank you for your word, and I do pray that you might do such a work in our lives that we would be those following drinking the new wine. We love you, Lord, for those here who don't know you Holy Spirit, save today. For those of us who need to be confronted, do it. Take the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.